0: Please open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 8 as I invite Christina to read for us. This is the word of God. John chapter 8 verse 53 to, no, sorry, 1 to 12. 1 to 11, I guess. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one commanded you? Condemned you, sorry. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more.
1: Thanks, Christina. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Good. Uh, it's good to see you. I know, uh, I noticed we had a little, uh, uh, Andy Dwyer from Parks and Ref, uh, Rex referenced during the welcome on the slide there. That's how you know the media team is feeling too joyful and encouraged lately. So we're going to have to, uh, take it out on them later. But yeah, you, we don't usually have this giant pit here. But for the last four weeks, Linwood High School has had the orchestra pit open because they've been doing a drama production thing. And I'm going to be honest, it's going to be gone next week. And I feel like I'm really going to miss it. Um, And in particular, here's what I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss being able to set, like, my tea or my coffee right there and watch so many of your eyes twitch (laughs) as I walk past. Like, it's going to fall in. And listen, I put it there on purpose because if I put it down on the ground, I will kick it because I'm not paying attention. If I put it up here, it's less likely to spill. But if I do spill and some of you naysayers are proven right, I will personally buy you a donut uh, next Sunday, okay? Now, that doesn't mean to root for it to fall. but. We're in the Gospel of John, as we've been for a number of months, and uh, we're in this section in John chapter 8, and I'm going to be honest with you, I am personally uh, a little bit daunted by the work that we have ahead of us. I will also just say briefly, as as you could tell from the the scripture reading and our passage today, is dealing with subjects of adultery, and the law, and sin, and sexual sin, and so I will be uh, delving into some of those topics. I say that um, for the benefit of of you parents who have children with you in the room, obviously, or Renee watching somebody else's children this weekend, Uh, but good luck with that. I, I, (laughs) my... Here's my sincere, uh, my sincere pledge is, is whenever we talk about those these issues, I always just want to give parents a heads up so that you know uh, maybe to be prepared for further conversations. Never is it my intention to be graphic or gratuitous, but I want to deal with some of these subjects because uh, the Word of God compels us to. We like to go line by line, verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we have to address certain things. But even before we get to that, I've got some other really complicated stuff to get to. So will you pray for me as I pray for our time right now? God, we, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for... The fact that um, as we just go through your word, God, we have to confront uh, topics and ideas and thoughts that uh, maybe we wouldn't naturally gravitate towards or want to deal with. And so, God, we thank you for that. Thank you for your grace in that. Thank you for your grace in uh, giving us instruction, not just in so-called spiritual matters, but really in in everything that life has uh, to offer us. And so, God, I pray for myself, would you help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word, and for all of us, would you give us soft and, and receptive and teachable hearts here today um, as we give this time to you and ask for you to do what it is that you want to do in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> there's um, there's a part of me that feels kind of every Sunday when we gather like this, whenever I'm preaching, it, it kind of feels like uh, having a family meal where extended family is gathering together, and I'm the one that's kind of responsible most weeks for putting the menu together for kind of cooking up the meal. That's, that's, that's an analogy I've, I've heard used before, and it, it feels really true. And so how, real quick show of hands, how many of you, you'd say you're like the primary person who cooks in your family, right? Raise your hand. Okay, you're the, you're the primary person, you, you do the meals, you primarily do it, and, and you ever had that experience where you open up the refrigerator like, okay, what am I going to make for dinner tonight, and then you're like, wow, I have some weird combinations of food Like, I've got, there's like, there's like leftover enchiladas, but also like Brussels sprouts, and like, can I serve those two together? Like, there's, like, there's meatloaf, and there's wonton soup. Like, what are we going to do? Like, and the kids are like, what in the world is this strange combination of things? You're like, just eat it, or go hungry, right? And uh, it's a little bit how I feel this morning coming to you, because uh, we, we need to talk about the content of this passage, but... But you guys are some smart folks, and, and even before, weeks before we got into this passage, I got a couple of different emails from you saying, Hey, what's the deal with this bracketed section? I took a picture of, of my Bible and can show it to you. And depending on your translation, you may have something like what, what my Bible has in it. Says, it says there, The earliest manuscripts, MSS, do not include 753 through 811. And there's brackets around it. And the whole passage has brackets around it. And like, that's a big deal when the, the translators and the publishers decide to put this big stop kind of right in the middle of it. Hey, just so you know, the earliest manuscripts don't have this section. Like, well, what in the world does that mean? And, and, and I, I, I seriously, I got two emails from people in the church asking like, hey, are we going to do this passage? And we're, is this what we're, Daniel, were you one of them? Yeah, Daniel was one of them. So Thank you for that. Uh, we have to address the fact that as you're reading through, you see little things like that. Like, well, What in the world does this mean? Let me tell you what this means. At the risk of sounding shocking or controversial, this passage of John was almost certainly not written by John. This, these verses are not John. Now, why would I say that? Okay? Calm down. Some of you are like, what? Okay, why are we teaching on it then, right? Let me, let me explain to you as it says they're not in the early, this passage is not in the earliest manuscripts so we got manuscripts right before there was ever the printing press you got all these little copies and fragments and sometimes big fragments sometimes several hundred pages worth of the new testament and it's not until you get to the year 400 something called the codex beze where you finally find this passage in this section of John's gospel we have older manuscripts we got a lot of manuscripts, tens of thousands of manuscripts, copies of the Gospel of John and, and the New Testament. And this story isn't in the earliest manuscripts. Not only is it not there, it's not in the earliest commentaries. Early church fathers and early church writers would go through and they would comment on the Gospel of John. They would skip this section entirely. And so it's, it's not there in the earliest commentaries. It, it also, when you look at John's narrative, it's kind of an awkward fit if you remember last week, we were talking about Jesus having this conversation with the religious leaders and Nicodemus stands up and says, hey, let's make sure we give him a fair hearing and let's not judge him prematurely. And then if you jump to verse 12, they get right back into the conversation about judging and understanding and, and, and it really makes sense. If you just wiped this section out, the, the flow of John's narrative goes a lot smoother. This passage uh, uses words and phrases in the Greek that don't match John's style. In this one little section, 11 verses, there are 14 unique words not found anywhere else in the Gospel of John. And here's perhaps the funniest one, or at least the, maybe the oddest one. This story, depending on what manuscript you're looking at, you're looking at some ancient manuscript, sometimes it appears in other Gospels. Sometimes it appears earlier in John, and sometimes it appears in Luke, This guy, Andreas Kostenberger, who I've quoted, uh, you've heard me quote him a number of times, he says, This pericope, which is just a fancy scholarly word for this chunk of scripture, represents a floating narrative in search of a gospel home, whether Luke or John, but which was almost certainly not part of John's original gospel. D.A. Carson, another scholar, respected scholar who we've leaned on heavily through this series, he says, despite the best efforts of of some people to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is just against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text, like the NIV does, or to just put it in a footnote, like the Revised Standard Version does. Well, When you mention this, part of the fear or part of the tension that comes up for, for many of you is then, well, oh no, how, how, how can we trust the Bible? Or, or this is gonna do that thing where then people start to raise objections about the reliability of the Bible and it's, it's been translated and it's been copied. You got the, um, you know, the, the great American theologian and scholar, Dan Brown, who wrote the Da Vinci Code, right? He said that the Bible has, quote, evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. You guys heard arguments like this? Still haven't spilled my coffee, by the way. The, you guys heard arguments like this where, where man, we, how can we trust the Bible? You got one copy of it from antiquity that doesn't have this section and one copy that does have this section, and, and how, how can we even trust the Bible? It's just been collated and compiled by, by you know, messed up human people with political and religious agendas. And, and, and the problem is, is this argument really misses two fundamental things the first fundamental thing that they miss is the idea of just how well attested historically the Bible is. We have what what the leading scholars call an embarrassment of riches in terms of how many copies of the New Testament in particular, but the Old Testament too, New Testament in particular, just how many copies we have. We have a thousand times, Dan Wallace is a guy, he says, "We have a thousand times more manuscript evidence that Jesus of Nazareth existed than we do that Alexander the Great existed." A thousand times more. That if you took certain um, uh, ancient works, you know, uh, the, 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 the wars, the Gallic Wars, by Julius Caesar, and you stack up how many copies of it we have, you'd stack it up, and'd be about waist high. That's the average. You take the number of copies that we have of the New Testament, you stack it up, it's over a mile high. So if you want to argue with the theological claims of the Bible, that's fine. But you cannot reasonably make an argument that the Bible we have now is not what was written then because we have literally tens of thousands of copies of these manuscripts and we know with more certainty what the writings of the New Testament were than any other book in ancient literature. If you want to reject the New Testament on literary grounds, you would have to throw out everything that we have from Homer, from Plato, from Julius Caesar. It's, it's, a, it's a misunderstanding of just how well attested historically the Bible is, but it's also a misunderstanding of what the doctrine of scripture is. Listen, church family, we do not believe that the Bible magically fell out of the sky one day and someone walked over and picked it up like, oh, we need, what's this? Let's read it. That's not what the Christian teaching about scripture is, and it's not what the Bible itself claims to do. The Bible itself makes claims that people worked on this together and, and there were you know, uh, you know, things that, like in the book of Jeremiah, you can see where they talk about, they had copies of it and then Baruch had to recopy it and they edit it and they changed it. And, and the, the claim is though that God is speaking through people and is sovereignly orchestrating, giving us his trustworthy and reliable word. So even if we look at this section in John and say, wow, this this got added in later on, this got somehow brought into it, man, we can still trust the reliability of God's word. There's a lot more that could be said about this. There's a lot more that could be said about this. And so for those of you who would like to study further on this, I've added some links on the website under this sermon page but I'm going to mention a few things to you. First of all, I mentioned the scholar, Dan Wallace. He has a website called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. For some of you, if you've ever been struggling with insomnia, this is the cure, okay? Uh, For others of you, you won't sleep for days because what he has done is he has assembled a a team of PhDs and scholars, and they are trying to take photographs and digitize the hundreds of thousands thousands of pages of all of the different New Testament manuscripts that we have. And you can go on the website, they've got a blog, you can look at photographs. I looked at a picture of that Codex Bezae that I referenced earlier. I didn't put it up there because I didn't want you to think I was a nerd, okay? I leave that department to Pastor Shane, that's his job, okay? Uh, the same scholar, Dan Wallace, he did a sermon in 2014 as part of the Best Sermon Ever sermon series on this idea of can we trust the New Testament? I found it, I linked to it, it's still up on YouTube, you can find it, and I listened to it this week, it's really helpful. Speaking of of Pastor Shane, uh, he did a sermon almost exactly three years ago on a section of the Gospel of Mark that's kind of contested as well. I listened back to that, super helpful, and the majority of the sermon deals with these things of textual criticism, and how we got the New Testament, and the reliability of the scriptures. If you really want to throw down We have an event coming up on April 24th. It's a documentary movie called Fragments of Truth. This is being released nationwide, and it's a full-length documentary about the study of New Testament manuscripts, how we got the Bible, how we got the New Testament, how reliable this is, Uh, you know, ancient literature compared to uh, other ancient literature compared to the New Testament. I mean, it is a full-on awesome nerd fest, okay? And as I tease you, you need to know with all sincerity, this is for some of you an area where God is calling you to study and to learn and to grow. We purchased a a group of 20 tickets and we're giving them away for free to the first 20. I believe, Shane, what did you say? 11 have been already claimed? So we might have 10, We got about half of them are gone. If they all get given away, that's fine. You can still buy your own ticket, but we just bought 20 so that we can make sure that those of you who want to go can participate in this. So go to our website and and study more. Now, all that to say, what do we do with this passage? What am I supposed to do with this passage? It wasn't written by John, almost certainly. Scholarly evidence is, it wasn't written by John. What do I do? Do we skip it? Andreas Kostenberger in his commentary, he just skips it. One of the other guys I was reading, Gary Berg, he just skips it. What do I do? Well, D.I. Carson says, and I think it's very helpful, he says, on the other hand, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described did occur, even if in its written form it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books. The reasons why would be it is, even though it's not in the, in the commentaries or in the manuscripts, it is referenced by very early writings. So very early church writers reference this story just not in the Gospel of John. They reference it as happening. There's a common thread and a common theme of this idea of the conflict story. How many times have we seen in the Gospels that Jesus gets into a conflict with the religious leaders? There's some sort of misunderstanding and conflict. That's pretty common, right? And the themes and the threads and the uh, theology that are taught in this passage are similar to things that we can find in the other Gospels. In fact, I would go so far as to say that even though this passage particular passage is not native to John's gospel, everything that's taught in it 100% lines up with things that are taught elsewhere in the scriptures. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you as we go. So I'm calling this passage truthful tradition. It might not be the gospel of John originally, but it's truthful tradition. Here's what Rodney Whitaker says about it. He says, this appears to have been a well-known story, one of many that circulated orally from the beginning, yet that none of the gospel writers were led to include. But someone in the later church thought this one was too good to leave out. Modern scholarship, although uh, concluding firmly that it was not part of John's gospel originally, has generally recognized that this story describes an event from the life of Christ. Furthermore, it is as well-written and theologically profound as anything else in the gospels. So if you'll allow me to teach this passage and you'll allow me to lean more heavily on other passages from the Bible to demonstrate the truthfulness of what this passage teaches, I think that Jesus has something really good for us today. Does that sound okay to you, Sound City? I hope that's helpful for you. I hope that that's, at least for somebody in here, because, man, it'd be so easy to either just kind of ignore the little manuscript things, move on, let's read it, let's just treat it as, as scripture, or to just skip the passage altogether and not really give much of an explanation, but I feel like, I owe you that so you can understand what we're doing here on Sundays. Part of what we're doing is is myself, the other pastors, we're trying to teach you how to read the Bible for yourself. My greatest joy is not that you would become reliant upon me or any other preacher, but that you'd become more reliant upon the Word of God directly. So how I can serve you and help you, how we can serve you and help you, is to help you to read and learn and study and understand the Bible. Now, here's where we're going to go with this passage today. And I'll start by reminding you of something we read in John chapter one, verse 17. For those of you who are here back when we first kicked off this passage, you might remember where it says in John 1:17 that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I see this story of Jesus with the woman caught in the act of adultery playing out in narrative form this verse. This verse by the way is a contrast verse but it's not a contrast between bad and good it's a contrast between good and ultimate the law of moses is not bad and then jesus showed up and gives grace and truth because darn that law of moses no it's it's good the law that was given through moses is a good gift from god amen but jesus comes with the grace and the truth of god almighty And as great as Moses was, and as great as the law is, one who is greater than Moses is here. Those of you who were around when we did the book of Hebrews, you remember we kept talking about this. It's not bad versus good. It's good versus great. And that's what this story is teaching us. I'm going to read through the story, make some comments as we go through, and I'm going to draw out three points at the end. So starting in what we can call 753, They each went to his own house, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught In the act of adultery. That's intense. In the very act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And then John makes this little clarifying parenthetical statement. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So quick comment on this. These these religious leaders, their motives are not pure. They aren't bringing this woman before Jesus because they really care about honoring God's law, the law of Moses. They're not bringing this woman forward because they really, truly care about righteousness and justice and the law. They're bringing this woman forward because they're trying to what? They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him caught so that they might have some occasion to bring him down. See, the Jewish people, the the nation of Israel, was under the occupation of what great world empire? Rome. And according to Roman law, we can see another place in the New Testament, the Jewish leaders, they have some authority, but they did not have the authority of the death penalty. And so... Here they bring this woman out, and they kind of give Jesus, basically no matter what Jesus says, he could get in trouble. Option one, Jesus says, well, no, we shouldn't stone her. We shouldn't put her to death. Well, then they've just caught Jesus saying that the law of Moses doesn't matter, and he doesn't care about tradition, and he doesn't care about Israel, and he doesn't care about what the law says, and they can turn on him on the basis of Jewish law. On the other hand, if Jesus says, yep, it's clear, she's violated the law of Moses, the penalty is clearly death, let's execute her. Well, then they get to go run to the Roman authorities and tattle and say, oh, look at Jesus, he's breaking the law. He's advocating the death penalty when clearly you Romans are the only ones that have the power of the death penalty. No matter what Jesus does, no matter what Jesus says, they've got an opportunity to trap him. They do not care about honoring God. They only care about their agenda of getting rid of Jesus. There's also something fishy happening here. Most commentators point this out, and and, and much ink is spilled on this, but did you notice what verse 5 says? In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such, what's the word? Women. That is not what the law commands. Do you know what the law, well, let me just remind you that, How would I say this? It takes two to tango. Uh, Like adultery, you know, like, oh, just, you know, solo adultery. Like eh, It's not really a thing. Adultery, by definition, is people who are not married to each other, married people who are not married to each other, committing acts of sexuality. And if you go back and you read... Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus 20. The law of Moses commands both shall be put to death. So something fishy is going on here. The woman has been singled out, publicly shamed. We don't know what happened to the man who was involved, but we know there was a man involved because what did they say? This woman has been caught in the very act of adultery, That means somebody was aware, somebody was tipped off, somebody knew where to look, somebody knocked on a door, somebody opened a tent, somebody did something that's an invasion of privacy, we might call it in our culture today. Somebody was doing something to catch these people engaged in this act, and yet the only one that they bring out for judgment is the woman. And it just highlights how some things in human nature never change. I don't want to make too much out of this, but it's, it's something like, in our culture, if a man is promiscuous, well, he's a player, he's a dog, oh, he's a, you know, he's, that's a man, that's what you're supposed to do, right? But if a woman is promiscuous, she's a whore. Some things in human nature don't change. Um, Man. Men and women both have problems, right? It's not like being a man's easy, being a woman's hard. Being a woman's easy, being a man's hard. We, we, we both got our problems. I just read Genesis 3 to my younger children last night, and there's the curse in the garden and for sin. And to the man, he said, work is going to suck. Let's paraphrase. It's in the Hebrew, right? And, and to the woman, marriage is going to be really hard, and, and childbirth is going to be really painful. This is, this is unjust. This is inequitable. This does not meet the standard of God's righteous law. So Jesus bent down. And he wrote with his finger on the ground. Just kind of get the idea of like Jesus just not really giving them the time of day. One of the great mysteries in all of the scripture. What was Jesus writing? And he, was a lot of speculation. Ultimately, nobody knows. I know, I'm just not going to tell you. And as they continued to ask him, like, the, Jesus, we're, we're asking you a question. Are you, I, part of me really wishes that he's just drawing a picture of like a donkey or something. Like, just, <laughs> just... As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin... Among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he just bent down and wrote on the ground. (laughs) When they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. A lot of speculation on what Jesus could have been writing. But one thing is pretty clear. You know know this, this phrase, "'Let he who is without sin cast the first stone.'" If I was putting together a top 10 list of Bible verses that get yanked out of context and abused and punished, not just by Christians, but even people who aren't followers of Jesus or or students of the Word of God, man, this one would be on my top 10 list. Anybody agree with me on that? Hey, who's without sin? Cast the first stone. As though you have to be morally perfect in order to notice that something that someone's doing is wrong. If we wanted to really take that idea to its fullest extreme, we should have no police, no juries, no judges, no laws, really because nobody has any sort of moral high ground or moral authority to point out any other wrongdoing in others. It's not what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is actually referencing something very specific. If you've got your you know, notebooks or whatever, write this down. Write down Deuteronomy 13. And you can go read it, but what Deuteronomy 13 says, I'll paraphrase here is, if someone comes to you and tells you, hey, let's go worship idols. It'll be fun. Let's go worship other gods. Let's go make some statues. Let's go up in a high place. We'll get some people together. We'll throw a big party. We'll all get drunk. Maybe take off our clothes. Let's go worship idols because that's what idol worship was. It was drinking and sex. It says, if someone comes to you, don't go with them, and they must be put to death You first. You, the one who they tried to entice, you are the one that must put them to death because they tried to get you to reject your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and saved you from slavery. You gotta do it first. As long as you, the writer of Deuteronomy says, as long as you didn't go do it with them. You draw a line in the sand, I'm not going with you. In fact, I'm going to enforce justice. I'm gonna enforce God's law. That's what Jesus is referencing. He's referencing The law of Moses. He's using the law of Moses to show the right use of the law of Moses. Isn't that interesting? They went away, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to him her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. From now on, go and sin no more. You guys see how that ties back to that John 117 I said? The law of Moses, grace and truth. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus. Let me say three things about this story. And the first one is this. This one, again, um, this one is not hard to prove from the scriptures. Not just this passage, but really a lot of what the Bible has to say is, is this, is that sexual sin is serious because sex is such a precious gift. You'll notice that Jesus did not say, whoa, 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 everybody calm down. I mean, as long as she is doing what made her happy, right? I mean, two consenting adults, it's right. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus does not contradict the law of God. Please, please join me in my quest to be the type of Christian that does not denigrate the Old Testament, but seeks to understand it in the light of Jesus Christ. For far too many years, heard Christians say just really irresponsible things about the law of God. Jesus does not denigrate the law of God. Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's, it's no big deal. I came with mercy and grace, and it's, it's totally cool. People can just kind of do whatever they want. He, he, he doesn't tell everyone to just calm down. He, he acknowledges the seriousness of the moment. And I know I've said this before, but one of the reasons why, why God... Has a lot to say about sex is because you're talking about the most potent thing, really, in all of human existence. I was having a conversation with a friend earlier this week. This person's not a Christian, and uh, and and he said something like, like he was talking about getting married soon and and wanting to have kids eventually, and and it's like, why why would you want to have kids?" And he's like, "Because I think it's." Uh, I can't say exactly what he said, but he said, because I think it's incredible that you can just like make a life. You can just make a human being. I was like, I know, that is incredible. It's pretty remarkable, right? That a, a man and a woman can come together and the most pleasurable act known to mankind can create a life. And you think about how much joy God must have within himself to create human beings and to have created life. If we're created in his image and likeness. What a precious, what a potent gift though, right? And so it would make sense that, that, that God would say, hey, here's some ways to do this and some ways not to do this and some parameters and some safeguards because you don't have to be a counselor or a therapist or a pastor or a guidance counselor to school to know that like, not even close, the number one category of issues that people are dealing with has something to do with the pain that was caused by Misuse of relationship and, and sex. This is like all the time. All the time. We're seeing a tsunami in our culture right now of this um what it, it's the the me too thing, right? Without getting to, into all the politicization of that, it want to just break your freaking heart. So many women in our culture have had to deal with either Softer forms of sexual harassment are just outright sexual abuse. As a father of daughters, it not only breaks my heart, it enrages me that this is what's considered normal in our culture. Meanwhile, we're sitting here in our United States of America moral superiority when all we have done is sow seeds of sexual revolution for 50, 60, 70 years and then we're shocked when a horrible tree grows up, it's, blow, it's mind-blowing when you think about it. I was reading the book of Hosea this week, just in my personal devotions, and there's this line in the, its Old Testament prophet, said, you've sowed the wind and reaped the whirlwind. You know, you've, you've little puffs of, little breaths, little, wh- and then you're surprised when a Category 5 tornado comes back through. You hear this? What's it? What's it hurt? Two consenting? Oh, it's just—it's just a little of this. It's just a little of that. You're you're sowing breaths of wind, and when enough people sow enough breaths of wind, you get a tornado. And listen, this isn't even just Christians and Bible teachers saying this stuff. I, I was watching a documentary recently. I'm, I'm sorry, but. The, <laughs> uh, a secular, uh, non-Christian clinical uh, neuroscientist, a a neurologist, a brain neurologist, and he has this whole big thing about how connected our brains are and how we don't even realize the choices and the attitudes and the actions, the way that they affect other people without us even knowing. And he's just talking about brain chemistry, that if you walk into a room and you are frowning, the first person that sees your frown, their brain fills with all sorts of chemicals and parts of their brain light up just because you're in the room and you're frowning. I was listening to a a secular psychologist, a series of lectures, a clinical psychologist, a therapist, a counselor, and he was talking about all of the way that clinical psychology proves just how interconnected we are. Meanwhile, for 2,000 years, the Bible's been saying things like, all in Adam will die, all in Christ will be made alive. We're one body in many parts. The one affects the whole. You guys, we've sowed the wind and we've reaped the whirlwind. And then... And then people look at this passage like, really? How barbaric. Death penalty for adultery? Really? How barbaric. How primitive. Listen. If you've ever been cheated on, you, you, you might change your tune just a little bit. I didn't bring any MP3s or lyrics to display for you. But I read several blog posts of things like the 20 greatest revenge songs after you've been cheated on. You know, and they start with mellow stuff like Carrie Underwood, you know, beating up somebody's car. (laughs) Maybe he'll think twice before he cheats. Garth Brooks, Thunder Rolls, live extended edition. Some of, you, some, of y'all, some of y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Like, <laughs> she reaches for the pistol, hid in the dresser drawer. Tonight will be the last night. She'll wonder where he's been. I'm not going to let you know how I know those lyrics, but I knew them before I read the blog post, okay? <laughs> Hip-hop, Rihanna, man down. And one of the <laughs> commenter on the BuzzFeed article, I think it was BuzzFeed, was like, well, you know, he probably deserved it. Meanwhile, a oh, barbaric barbaric idea that somebody would be killed for adultery and sexual infidelity hypocrisy much let's at least be consistent It's one of the most devastating things that a human being can go through to have the their heart devastated by. Infidelity and sexual sin. God says, we got to take this seriously. Now, just because the law says something does not mean it has to be enforced. Because even in the law of God, even in the Old Testament, we see this principle at work. It says this. Yeah, the, the law is good. The law is a baseline. The law is a good starting point. But there's something greater than the law. You know know what's greater than the law? Mercy. Mercy is greater than justice. Or to put it another way, love is the goal of the law. Again, let me demonstrate not just from this passage. Let me demonstrate it to you from the scripture. James chapter 2. James, of all people, James. I mean, if you think about the book of James, he's pretty hardcore. Get your stuff together. Act right. Act right. If you're not serving widows and orphans, your religion is useless, right? You think of James. like He's pretty hardcore. Ugh. James is the one who says, listen, if you keep the whole law, but you fail in one point, you, you're, you're guilty of all of it. You are a lawbreaker. For the one who said, God said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. Well, if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you're still a breaker of the law. So, friends, speak and act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty Judgment without mercy is given to the one who has shown no mercy. And then he says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. I want you to think of like a, like a word cloud. You ever seen a word cloud? I want you to think of like law, justice, judgment, fairness, equity. That's all these words are, are interrelated with each other. He says, look. Just because your flavor of sin is different than somebody else's flavor of sin, you are also a lawbreaker, and you need to think and act toward others as you would want to be judged. It's like it's like y'all are y'all you're, you're eating poison ice cream. Quit arguing about what flavor it is, right? Well, you know my my poison ice cream is, is fudge brownie, and there's is spumoni, and only weirdos eat spumoni, right? It's like it, It's bowl full of poison. Tastes really good at the moment. You're about to die. James says that there's something greater than judgment or justice or the law, and it is mercy. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Here's the point of the law. It's Love. For the commandments, you know, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. Funny how adultery and murder always make the list. They're like right there in the top 10 list, right? You shall not steal, you shall not covet. The 10 commandments, they're all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Let me, let me ask you this. For those of you who are parents and you have kids, you ever notice that kids very often gravitate towards justice and fairness, right? It's not fair. Oh my gosh. It's not fair this. It's not fair that. I'm like, look, if you want to run your family on the basis of just fairness, good luck with that. You're going to turn out a bunch of little legalist, moralist lawyers. No offense to any of the lawyers here, but you just... All they're going to do is spend all day arguing and going back and forth, as opposed to, what if you really sought to raise your children to genuinely love one another, to seek to build each other up? What if we treated church like that? What if we treated community like that? You know what's interesting? Let Let me pick on both sides of the political spectrum for just a moment here. In my lifetime, I can remember kind of two major things that have been big public controversies around this idea of like law and justice. One is uh, the public display of the Ten Commandments. You guys remember, I don't know what that's maybe been about 10 years or so, a lot of stuff in the news about we gotta get the Ten Commandments up, we gotta get the Ten Commandments up. Ten Commandments, good or bad? Good, thank you, thank you, I appreciate that, easy one. But the amount of energy and effort that was spent over putting up the Ten Commandments, like that's like a starting point. Ten Commandments isn't like the peak and the pinnacle of everything. That's like the baseline. Like, hey, don't murder each other and don't commit adultery on each other. But you know what's even better? Love one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. On the more liberal, you know, progressive side of things, we're seeing kind of right now this whole big movement towards social justice. Again, is it good or bad to have a society that is just? Good, yeah, if you don't think that God cares about justice in the society, how people treat each other, you're not reading the Bible. But again, social justice, treating each other justly, is that the ultimate goal? No, that's like, a, again, it's a starting point. Like, yeah, how about we just treat people fairly, but you know what's even better? How about we love one another? You know what the kingdom of God calls us to? Radical love, radical grace, radical mercy, Ray Ortland, a pastor and author, he says this. He says, we revere the Ten Commandments, but we will not spend eternity shouting, worthy is the law, but worthy is the Lamb. Some of you are naturally justice-minded and fairness-minded. and I just want to encourage you. There's, in this passage, Jesus is showing, yeah, that's good. Justice is good. People being held accountable is good, but there's something a lot better. Mercy, love, grace, forgiveness. Which leads me to the last point that I want to make today, and it's this. Radical grace leads to radical change. Do you know what Jesus said to the woman? Hey, I'm not condemning you. I'm not condemning you. I'm not using this moment in your... I mean, think about this poor woman, just humiliated and dragged out in public. Maybe half-dressed. Who knows? I mean, just... Just humiliated. And Jesus meets her with mercy and love and grace and kindness. And then what does he say? Now, I'm not condemning you. Now, I want to speak truth to you. I've shown you grace. Now, let me tell you, don't keep going down this path. If you keep walking down these paths, it's going to kill you. It's not good for your soul. You were created for more. You have dignity, you have value, you have worth. The the law of God is there to show us his perfection and our need for a savior. Jesus is the one who offers us radical grace through his death on the cross and his resurrection. He cleanses us of our sins and forgives us of all unrighteousness, amen? Amen. But that's not the, the end of where the gospel goes. The gospel then says, I've, I've cleansed you, I've forgiven you, I've, I've washed you clean. Now let me teach you and let me instruct you and let me speak truth to you to show you how now to live in a way that will bring you great joy. Guys, God never commands anything to rob us of joy but to give us true and lasting joy. And the more we understand the radical grace of God, the radical forgiveness of God, the more it will lead us to want to change and live our lives differently. Amen? This is what Paul says in Romans chapter two. It says, God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. In fact, that verse comes in the middle of a warning like, hey, don't just take advantage of the grace of God. Just because he's got all this grace, don't just be like, oh cool, thanks for the grace and then just go on doing whatever, you're doing, he says, don't you, don't you understand that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance? And I love that because it brings all sorts of clarity to all sorts of things. It's not, most times, God's pure harshness that leads us to want to change. Man, it's, we want to see the beauty of the gospel of grace. And The more you really get that, the more you're going to want to turn your life over to him and trust yourself to him. But it says, yeah, there's, there's change that comes. When we've seen just the ugliness of the cross, we want to change, we want to grow, we want to move forward and follow him. So let me just ask you these questions just as we close. How do you respond when you see somebody else's sinfulness? Some of you might be prone to just ignore it. Oh, it's fine, just what? it's no big deal. Others of you, if you check your heart, you, you might be prone to want to pick up the rock. Hey, that's not right. Change, do better. Law, justice. Is it? Do you judge other people's types of sin more harshly than you judge your own? How do you respond when you find yourself caught up in your own sin? Shame, beat yourself up, ignore, make excuses. What do you really see Jesus there? Could you see yourself as the woman with Jesus right there coming to your defense saying, hey, I'm not gonna condemn you. I've got love for you. I've got mercy for you. Let me teach you. Let me wash you. Let me clean you. Let me instruct you. How do you respond when you're sinned against by others? This woman, we don't know all the details, but it seems pretty clear that she was sinned against by others. How do you respond when that happens to you? Try to exact revenge, trust to Jesus. And then lastly, how do you respond when you are instructed to follow and obey? Oh, don't don't get all legalistic on me, man. I'm under grace, not law. Yeah, but but grace means we're changed. Grace means we're changed. We can't live the same way we used to. Father God, I ask and I pray for us here. God, this is weighty, weighty stuff. Trying to understand the law and how far short of it we've fallen and God, trying to wrap our heads around just how good your grace is. Jesus, we thank you that you died on the cross in our place for our sins. That this, this, cross and resurrection is right at the center right at the heart of, of what we believe and what we practice. God I pray today for anyone who is who is identifying maybe more with the Pharisees today just finding there's judgment in their hearts and looking down on their nose at others. God I pray you would give them your heart. God would you give me that heart to want to practice mercy more than I want to practice justice. God, for others in this room who are even themselves right now experiencing just shame over sins that they have committed or wrongs that have been done to them, God, I ask and I pray that you would administer your grace and your mercy now, that you would let them even feel right now in this moment the cleansing effects that your blood has on us. God, for all of us, would you speak your word of truth to us that we might have our lives lived in greater alignment with what your will is for us, experiencing experiencing the true joy that comes from from knowing you and walking in your ways. May we respond now to you in worship, in repentance, in, in receiving your grace. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Friends, I want to invite us to respond in a few ways. We're going to sing. We're going to celebrate the table. First, we're going to Collect an offering, and uh, even in a moment like this, I acknowledge just eh, feels a little bit kind of like a swift left turn. Here's the idea. We give not out of guilt or duty or obligation. We give because God has given us everything. He's given us his grace. All that we own, all that we have ultimately belongs to him. And so we give as an act of worshipful response, cheerfully as the scriptures would call us to, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. I'll just invite you to just stay in a place of receiving his grace right now. 1 Corinthians 11 says about this table celebration, it says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as I drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, today as you eat of the bread and as you drink of the cup, I invite you to let your heart pour out before God. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy that we deserved condemnation and instead we received love. Let a person examine himself. Whoever eats of the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood. So we need to examine ourselves first before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I would invite you to abstain from this meal. This is for Christians. Or even better than abstaining, give your sin to Jesus. Cry out to him for grace and mercy and join us at the table as we eat of the bread and as we drink of the cup. I'll invite the musicians to just play quietly for a moment, to give you a moment to do this, what it says to do, to pause and to reflect, and then uh, when they're ready, they'll invite us to stand and we'll sing of the grace and the mercy of God. Father, thank you for this time of celebration. Thank you for this time. I pray that it would be a healing time God as we, as we feel the weight of what this passage teaches I ask and I pray Father God that you would allow us to feel the more weighty grace of God and as we receive this grace as we eat and as we drink together now and as we sing together would you empower us to live lives where we forsake our sin and we pursue the truth that you have for us Jesus be with us now we pray in Jesus name. Amen.